Good morning. Welcome to Resistance Roundtable, broadcast on WPK on the second Saturday of each month, where we engage in conversation about local and nationwide organizing for a more just and democratic America during this pivotal and dangerous moment in our nation's history. Hosting today's show is Ruthie M. Baumgartner, who was a longtime instructor in literature and writing at Central Connecticut State University, member of the Executive Committee of the Connecticut Conference of the American Association of University Professors, who also serves as a member of the Board of Directors and a theatrical director with the Westport Community Theater. Ruth Ann is here with us in the studio today. Hey, Ruth. Good morning, Scott. And Richard Hill is also here. He's host of WPKN Show's first Tuesday Rainy Day Radio and Organic Farm Stand. He's also a rotating host of the program, Mike Check. Richard is a musician, teacher, and mentor with Youth Radio Connecticut. I'm Scott Harris, host of WPKN's weekly public affairs program, Counterpoint, and a producer of the syndicated show Between the Lines Radio News Magazine, which both Ruth Ann and Richard are contributors. Right now, I'm very happy uh, to welcome to our program longtime peace and justice activist Henry Lowendorf, chair of the uh, Greater New Haven Peace Council, member of the executive board of U.S. Peace Council, a member of Veterans for Peace, and former associate director of Yale University's Office of Cooperative Research, who served in that position from 1985 to 2006. We'll be talking about local activism to pressure the Biden administration to call for a ceasefire in Israel's brutal war in Gaza. And Henry, so we're so glad that you could make time to be with us uh, on the program this morning. Appreciate it. Thank you. And uh, Richard Hill, our co-host, has uh, our first question for you this morning. Good morning, Henry. Great to have you with us. You know, Henry, I know f- for many decades you've been a an activist in and around New Haven, in Connecticut at large, and I understand that you've been lobbying the New Haven Board of Alders to adopt a resolution calling for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. Could you tell us what the status of that proposed resolution is and also why you personally have been motivated to demand an immediate ceasefire in Gaza? Well, it's a good question, and I'll try to keep my answer brief. The status of the resolution is that it is sitting on the desk of the president of the Board of Alders. Resolution was submitted in at the end of December, um, and it was drafted by law students at Yale. And it was on the agenda, first reading on December 4th at the board's meeting. Um, the first reading is basically introducing resolutions and legislation and so forth. There's no discussion about it. Normally what happens is that the president of the board of alders is tasked with deciding what to do with these these resolutions and pieces of legislation. Usually they're sent to specific committees of the board to review, uh, to hold public hearings if that's appropriate, and and <clears throat> then to make a decision on on how to, how that should be handled by the <clears throat> excuse me how that should be handled by the full board of alders. Uh, the board of alders, um, the president of the board has not yet decided 
on a committee or even to send it to a committee. She has um, uh, not sent this to a committee, and that's where it stands right now. It, it's it's sitting on her desk. Um, why I've gotten involved, it, you, you pointed out that I'm a long-term peace advocate, and the the war uh, that Israel is waging against the Palestinians did not start on October 7th, 2023. It has been ongoing for a, a much longer time. And concluding that war, having peace, having uh, creating a uh, an agreement that allows the Palestinians sovereignty and citizenship and a, a right to decide their own fate, that has been on the table for 75 years. And it hasn't been settled with all of the negotiations that have taken place. That hasn't been, nothing has been determined. But in the meantime, a tremendous amount of violence has taken place in, uh, in the territories that the, that the uh, Israelis occupy, that Palestinians live in and also within Israel proper itself. So as a, as a peace advocate, uh, I see this as one of the primary, primary uh, areas that we need, as a, as, a, as a human race, we need to calm down and create a, a peace situation, create a just peace. Let me just add one other thing. Israel has nuclear weapons. It doesn't admit it. The United States goes along with that, but it has uh, maybe 200 nuclear weapons and the ability to to, to uh, land them on territories anywhere in the world. Um, it has the biggest military in the Middle East, most powerful, most weaponized, uh, most technologically advanced. Israel, this, this war in Gaza, uh, has expanded beyond Gaza. There's war taking place on the northern border, uh, Israel and Lebanon. There's war taking place based on on what's happening in Gaza, in Syria, in Iraq, in Yemen, and in the Red Sea, and threats of war to expand to Iran. This situation could expand into a much broader war. It has been expanding, and it could lead to a nuclear war. So the urgency of ending it can't be overstressed. Thank you, Henry. Uh, thank you, Henry. If I could follow up on that um, for one second. I just wanted to ask you regarding this resolution for a uh, demanding a ceasefire in front of the New Haven Board of Alders. What other, what other cities in uh, Connecticut have taken up these resolutions, similar resolutions, and passed them, actually? Well, Bridgeport passed a resolution uh, calling for a ceasefire, and the city of Windsor, 30,000 people, called also passed a resolution. It's, uh, it's A resolution has been submitted to the town of Hamden. Uh, there's discussion and movement in Hartford and uh, in Middletown and others, other towns across the state to pass similar resolutions. Each one has its own language. 
but the, the idea is the, the the central idea is let's call for a ceasefire. I, I have to add something. The ceasefire is is um, part of what needs to happen. The other is humanitarian aid. Right now, Israel is starving 2.3 million people. Malnutrition is, they've gone past malnutrition. There are 600,000 children who are being starved by Israel. Israel is preventing humanitarian aid from getting into into Gaza. Uh, and the United States, our government, is enabling this without our government's permission and, and despite uh, uh, some words uh, by the Biden administration. He, he said uh, what's happening in Gaza is over the top. I don't think that those words have any functional meaning. Uh, 2.3 million people are being starved. So if they aren't being bombed and shelled to death, they're going to be starved to death. That is genocide. That is uh, ethnic cleansing. It's a horrendous situation, and the United States, it, and it's our responsibility as human beings to say we don't, we see it happening. We, we want it to stop. Thanks for that, Henry. I, I did want to just mention that uh, dozens of, of cities around the, the country have also passed resolutions, including Atlanta and Detroit. I know that... Uh, both uh, San Francisco and Seattle are considering such resolutions and may, may have already passed it. Um, I wanted to ask you, as, as somebody who's been a longtime peace activist and involved in the anti-apartheid movement during the 1980s, when apartheid was uh, uh, the rule in South Africa, um, I wonder if you see any parallels with the activism that we're now seeing on college campuses across the country in terms of students getting active on demanding a ceasefire uh, and having their college administrations uh, sign on to that uh, uh, that goal as well. Um, do you see any parallels with the 1980s anti-apartheid movement right now in this country? Yes, there, there are definitely parallels. The, the world saw, when I say the world, I'd say a majority of the people of the world, saw that what was going on in South Africa, this incredible apartheid system uh, of enormous discrimination by the white South African minority against the black and uh, African and Asian um, majority, that it was an abomination. And there was internationally a boycott, divestment, sanctions movement against South Africa. Let us, which which ended up being very being successful. Eventually, the white government, the apartheid government of South Africa, had to uh, basically give up the the total power it had and allow a majority of South Africans to decide how they wanted to go forward. South Africa didn't disappear off the planet; it's still there, but the apartheid regime at least the political apartheid regime, is gone. And students then, and a lot of other activists then, uh, worked very hard to ensure that the, the apartheid regime would end, including in Connecticut and including in New Haven. And there were major uh, 
successes in getting the, the city and the state to uh, take actions in terms of divestment on that. And uh, student activism was enormous. There was a, uh, well, I, I won't go into the details, but uh, yes, and then I was involved in that. Right. Not as a student, uh, but uh, as as a peace person. So getting rid of apartheid then was was a major world effort. And it, it, it can't be, none, it, 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 it seems to me pretty obvious that the government of, of Israel is an apartheid government. It's a Jim Crow government. And in the last uh, number of years, you could call it a Ku Klux Klan government. It's an extreme right-wing government. But all of the governments of Israel have supported uh, an apartheid regime, in, not only in Israel proper, where there are Palestinian citizens who are second class, but in the occupied territories where they, there are no citizens. They have no citizenship. They have no state. They have no rights. They're controlled by the military, Israel's military. So the, 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 before October 7th, there was a BDS, Boycott Divestment Sanctions, effort that was uh, initiated by the Palestinians to put pressure on the Israeli government to change its policies. Uh, let me add, and I think this is important, in the case of South Africa, the United States supported the apartheid government, as did Israel, uh, until the very last minute. Mm -hmm. It supported the apartheid government of South Africa, U.S. government, and, and the establishment it supported the apartheid government to the very last minute, and then it changed its mind. Uh, and that's happening in Israel, too. The United States government fully supports our members of Congress, a stand behind Israel, and it's an apartheid Israel. So the parallels are there. There are some other things which aren't parallel. Uh, in, in, in the case of South Africa, there wasn't a uh, a population of Africans, African-Americans in the United States that supported the apartheid regime of South Africa. But in this case, there is a population in the United States that does support is Israeli apartheid. So you have pushback, we have pushback, from uh, a significant, uh, uh, powerful population in the United States. So there are parallels and then there are anti-parallels. Got it. We're speaking with Henry Lowendorf, chair of the Greater New Haven Peace Council here on Resistance Roundtable. And Henry, uh, Ruth Ann Baumgartner, our co-host, has a, a question or comment for you. Hi, Henry. Um, as, a, as an old demonstrator from Vietnam, uh, I have a question that's kind of uh, sideways from here. I've been getting a lot of mailings, emailings about this demonstration. And um, all of them have urged me to wear my kefia and bring my Palestinian flag. I, I'd like to know a little bit if, if you know anything about the intended visuals of this demonstration, because I know that the visuals communicate a lot. And some of it isn't what was intended by the people running the uh, running the uh, demonstration, I would love to hear you. If you if you know, I don't know if they told you. 
Okay, so which demonstration are you referring to? Um, I think you might be talking about uh, people coming it. to Hartford on Tuesday for the hearing before the city council, the group that was sponsoring that. For some reason, I was thinking of this as happening in New Haven, but I'm not I, sure. don't, I don't really know. I just am okay, concerned so any, about any of the demonstrations. Any we of the did, demonstrations, of right. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think that the kafia and the Palestinian flags and the slogans are, are common to most of these demonstrations, and they're widespread. You, ha- you, ha- you have students, but you have uh, older folks. Uh, you have the Muslim community, you have the Arab community, you have the Palestinian community, you have increasing segments of the Jewish community. You have the African-American community. I mean, is, this is very broad. This is a very broad movement calling for, an indecis- calling for an end to this slaughter and genocide in Gaza as, a, as a, an, a, the starting point. You have, to stop, you have to stop bombing and shelling and sniping and killing mm-hmm. people in order to have humanitarian aid, because the humanitarian aid convoys have been shot and shelled and bombed by the Israelis. And the Israelis are preventing humanitarian aid, and, I mean, other than a trickle, to get in, because the results are very clear. People are starving. They have no clean water. They have, the hospitals have been destroyed. Everything's been destroyed. It's turned, turned, turned into a wasteland. That's, that's what Israel has done to Gaza. So this is a very broad, is a very broad movement. I, I, I bring up that the AFL-CIO has just called for a ceasefire following the lead of the UAW and the postal workers and, and uh, the service employees and uh, nurse, uh, National Nurses United, and, and one after another, individual national unions and a lot of local unions have been calling for ceasefire, and now the biggest labor federation in the United States has called for a ceasefire. This is, this is uh, to me, this is a major, it's a major uh, uh, stamp on on what this country needs to what this country needs to do, and what this government, what the Biden the Biden administration, and what the Congress needs to do, which is to to put some weight and action behind some very weak words. But I don't know if that answers your question in terms of this, the the visuals, but but. Uh, the flags and the, and the posters and the and the kafias are all symbols of supporting the right of Palestinians to live. First of all, that's being right. challenged by Israel, and and then to have some sovereignty, so to have some control over their lives, which overall they don't. Right. Yeah, I, that begins to answer it. I hope that all the component uh, participants are are uh, representing. Uh, that point of view, not not uh, one side should win, but that we have to s- stop the violence so we can try to figure out something that's going to work. Uh, that I, I'm I? concerned about the visuals because the the photographs that run are more widely consumed than the text. Yeah, the yeah, I, I I hear you on that. Can I add that you pointed out it. 
question of one side winning or the other. I mean, it is obviously a question of, of what happens. Uh, Israel is losing. That, to me, the Palestinians are being slaughtered, but Israel is losing. It's almost totally isolated in the world. The United States vetoed Security Council resolutions calling for a ceasefire. The resolutions went to the General Assembly, overwhelmingly supported. Only a handful of of countries supported the U.S. position in voting no. Even many of, of the U.S.'s very tight allies in Western Europe did not vote no. So the General Assembly said ceasefire. The International Court of Justice, which is the highest court in the world, said there's plausible evidence that uh, the South Africans that brought the case, the South Africans should know what apartheid is, the South Africans brought the case, and the International Court of Justice is plausible evidence that Israel is committing genocide and told Israel, didn't say ceasefire, it said stop anything that would be construed as genocide. Stop killing the population of Gaza. Stop slaughtering people. Israel immediately said, we will not pay any attention to the International Court of Justice. Mm-hmm. The United States, we says, you got Biden administration and Congress says, we support Israel. The United States is complicit in this genocide. The United States, we are, you and I, are forced into having a government that is complicit in a genocide. I mean, if you, if you protested against the, the slaughter of Vietnamese, as I did, right. you had the same feelings that I had. I don't want to be complicit. I don't want to be complicit in the slaughter of people in the genocide of the Vietnamese. And I, and I just want to add one, one other thing. When I first heard about the Holocaust in which the Nazis destroyed six million Jews and millions of gypsies and trade unionists and communists and and Slavs and so many people, homosexuals. I mean, the the Nazis were were, uh, genocidal. When I heard about that, and at the same time I heard, well, the German population didn't do anything about it, they didn't try to stop it, which wasn't entirely true. Mm Or that the Jewish population didn't fight back. That wasn't true. They did. But I told myself, if this ever happened, and I saw it happening, I had to fight back. I had to try to resist. I had to do something. I would not stand by and watch a genocide without taking action. And so when I understood, finally, what the Vietnam what the U.S. war in Vietnam was about, I took a side. And I understand what this war in Israel and Palestine is about, and I have to take a side to stop genocide. I do not understand, for the life of me, how anybody can watch what we see on television, even the corporate media or any of the media, the videos, the interviews, the destruction and the slaughter and the bloodshed, cannot sit back and say, that's okay, we want more. I can't understand for the life of me how anybody can do that. Especially we have elected leaders in, in from New Haven and from Connecticut who are progressive on so many issues and humanitarian on so many issues, and they are silent. Now, that's not entirely true. We have, I think, 12 elected officials in Connecticut 
including New Haven's own Robin Porter, but others, city councilors and so forth, the mayor of, of um, uh, Middletown, who have said ceasefire. But that's 12 out of hundreds and hundreds of elected officials in, in from Connecticut. How can the rest not say we need to stop this this bloodshed? It is it is it it it's the continuation of the bloodshed is to me self destructive for Israel. Not to mention for the United States. The United States is more and more isolated in the world. Any moral authority that was left is fast disappearing. It's shameless. Shameless. Henry, it's Richard again. Thank you for that yeah. impassioned description of, of uh, what's, go- what's going on and what's happening in the political class, so to speak. I just wanted to note that uh, this morning I, I was listening to Al Jazeera, which anybody can access online on your cell phone, <laughs> for that matter. And the death toll has uh, surpassed 28,000 in Gaza. I wanted to note that Anthony Blinken late last week that... The death toll in Gaza remains too high. And I was like, okay, what number of dead Palestinian civilians would be acceptable to you? And that's the question that I've been posing to my elected representatives, you know, all the ones that I've called up, Chris Murphy and Senator Blumenthal, Rosa DeLauro and others, to ask them at what point, what would be the cutoff for you, the number of acceptable deaths of civilians in Gaza that would move you to uh, ask for, demand a ceasefire. So I'm wondering if you can shed a little more light on why there's this atrophy and, and intransigence in the political class, our representatives, but also nationally, not to mention President Biden refuses to make a statement on this, you know, a firm statement to demand that Israel stop this. He could, with a single phone call, put an end to this. What are the forces at work here which which are stopping our political representatives from doing anything about this? Well, first of all, let me ask you a question. Have you gotten an answer from anybody? I've been speaking to interns in all these offices. The interns express a lot of sympathy from my point of view, and they say they'll pass my thoughts on to their the representative they're working for. I did receive, actually, I did receive a letter from uh, Senator Blumenthal that, that was a very unsatisfactory response from him. So you're asking a, a, an important question. The political class, that's a good term, the political class has been propagandized, as has this country. The United States, by far, has the most powerful propaganda machine in the world. It's an industry, the CIA, Hollywood, the corporate media. They create the framework under which or in which we work. They, they, they create this framework. So one of the pieces of that framework is the notion that any criticism of Israel is anti-Semitic. And on the face of it, that's nonsense. There's no reason why I, as, as a Jew can be called anti-Semitic because I criticize Israel any more than I, as an American citizen, can be called anti-American because I criticize U.S. foreign policy or domestic policy. I'm not anti-American. I'm trying to make the United States what it claims to be rather than allow it to lie and, and murder its way through the universe. So 
that's one problem. That's that's a, a huge challenge. That that people are afraid of being slandered by being called anti-Semitic. And of course, there's there are different aspects of this within the Jewish community, within the evangelical community, within the black community. Being called anti-Semitic has tremendous power. So that's that's one of one of the things. But the it's, that's within another context, and that is that Israel has been held up as the only democracy in the Middle East. Well, it may be a democracy for the Jewish people in Israel, and more specifically for the Orthodox Jews, because there's discrimination and segregation and so forth that goes on in Israel, and certainly within the occupied territories. But you can't have a democracy where some people get more of more of a vote than other people, Sometimes more of a vote means the other people don't get any vote. That isn't democracy, but they've held this up. And Israel was, Israel was created on the basis of denying a huge population its rights on the expulsion of 750,000 Palestinians in 1948 and 49, and not allowed to return to their homes as international law requires. Israel has said, you're out, stay out. And that's part of the problem right today. Israel would be very happy, The what I call the KKK government of Israel, would be very happy if, if Egypt would accept all of these Gazans, never to return to their homes, never to return to their farms, never to return, because that's what Israel's rules are. We get rid of the Palestinians and never return. I think Israel would prefer that than mowing down the whole population, which is what seems likely if Israel continues on the trajectory it is on now. So there's this whole propaganda campaign, this brainwashing that has taken place, and that's we need to break through that. And we have to figure out as a peace movement, how do we do that? How do we change the perspective of people into understanding what the reality is between the Palestinians and the Israelis and Jews around the world and Palestinians around the world. How do we change that perspective? I don't consider that simple. That's hard. But at the same time, I think it's necessary. And it is changing. As a result of this massacre that's been going on since October 7th, huge numbers of people have come out and said, stop, that wasn't happening before. And the massacres were taking place before. They weren't on the scale that they are now. But they were taking place before October 7th. Frequently, the Israelis would just, the military would just bomb and shell and destroy parts of Gaza. People in the West Bank would be kidnapped, shot, uh, children thrown in jail without any charges, or thrown in jail and tortured and, and said, oh, you threw stones. And the whole situation is so horrendous. And there's a population of people who see that now, and there's a population who have blinders on their eyes and blinders in their brains, and they refuse to see it. How do we change that? I think it's happening. It's happening slowly, too slowly. Henry, I, I want to thank you for making time to uh, share with our audience your own personal revulsion at what's going on and and examining and uh, providing some commentary on on why we see what's going on in Gaza without much reaction by our government here. 
Before we say goodbye, uh, you want to leave our listeners with a website or any other contact information if they want to get more details about what's going on locally in New Haven or Connecticut generally or even on the BDS movement. Feel free to leave any uh, any websites or, or numbers. The Jewish Voice for Peace national website has lots of very good information. There's another website, if not now, that has excellent information. There are, there are so many websites. If people contact you and are asking for information and you get send it, you know, pass it on to me, I can send them a list of websites that, that are containing, a lot of it containing up-to-date information uh, on what's happening. In terms of what's happening locally in Connecticut, I'm not sure what website to to uh, suggest at this point, but uh, I can I can find that I can find whatever information is necessary. Maybe uh, Henry, if you could give a little more information about the demonstration in Hartford, where the city council there I think is going to take up uh, a ceasefire resolution this week. I don't really have a lot of information about it now. There are a number of coalitions and organizations that are supporting these local resolutions as a way of letting our members of Congress know that their refusal to call for a ceasefire is unacceptable. Their refusal to end, you know, to use the power of the United States government to stop the slaughter is unacceptable. unacceptable. So I think people will show up and protest, demonstrate with signs and posters and flags and their voices uh, to make it clear that there's support for such a resolution in the city of Hartford, as there is in New Haven and elsewhere. Thank you so much, Henry. We appreciate you being here, and uh, we'll be in touch. Thank you. Bye for now. Bye-bye. That's Henry Lewendorf, chair of the Greater New Haven Peace Council, talking about local efforts to advocate for a ceasefire in the brutal war in Gaza. And I do have just a quick piece of information about the uh, Hartford City Council. There will be a gathering there uh, to press for that in the city of Hartford, a resolution backing a ceasefire this Tuesday, February 13th, 5.15 p.m., meeting outside Hartford City Hall. And I think the Jewish Voice for Peace of Connecticut chapter is one place to go to get information. So... And I think, uh, Ruthann, you had a rant on a related or a completely different topic. I'm, I'm not sure. It's actually extremely related. That's good. <laughs> so, and it's not very long. It's not as long as my usual rants, so I would love to rant. Um, I, I want to begin with a, with a story. Uh, some years ago uh, at the university where I was teaching, I was uh, discussing with my freshman class a short story by Nadine Gordimer, the great South African writer, uh, called City Lovers. And the short story is about, as many of her stories are, about the apartheid situation, which was then in force. My students didn't seem to get the story, but it may be that they didn't actually read it, I can't say. I was sketching in the background of apartheid, hoping to be helpful. And one student in the back was looking more and more distressed. As a matter of fact, I thought he was about to ask me to go to the nurse when he put his hand up. And I called on him and he said, who knows about this? Uh, it was really hard to field that question because I finally I said, just about everybody but you. Um, and we went on. But, but he was really disturbed and he just didn't have a clue. And this is... Um, 
he hadn't had a clue. And this is a problem that we always confront when there are matters of great concern. How? Who knows about this? We watch, especially in the days of Trump, uh, a question of who's consuming what news? How are people getting their information if they're bothering at all? Naomi Foreman Katz said in an article for the Pew Research Center a few months ago, Americans across demographic lines, including education, gender, race, ethnicity, and political party affiliation, are um, not participating in the election in preparing for the election by learning. She says that the decrease has been particularly steep among Repub Republicans who have also become much less li likely to uh, trust information from national news organizations. Among comparable Democrats, she says the drop is only 7%. Um, I want to... Uh, but Americans generally are following the news less closely than they used to. When she breaks this down by party, she says that since 2016, the percentage of adults ages 30 to 49 who said they followed the news all or most of the time dropped from 46% to 27%. Among adults 18 to 29, the drop was smaller, but so were the percentages. Um, although we're now entering an election year, this figure does not seem to have improved significantly. What that means foremost is that I would reasonably expect a similar sampling of college freshmen, almost all eligible to vote, um, the question who knows about this on any question significant to the coming election or indeed to our national needs and circumstances. I think if we uh, look at the, at the statistics about who's consuming news, shall we say, uh, the answer to who knows about this is not many. Um, on top of that, we have a stereotype about people who pay attention to the news. Uh, the older you are, the more likely you are to read a newspaper although sometimes that newspaper is going to be uh, the, the rag sitting at the supermarket at the checkout lane, uh, not necessarily the New York Times. Um, the younger uh, consumers of information evidently tend to get a lot of their information from the 2.5 square inch or however big it is screen on their phones. And uh, that information may not come from any source that they've particularly tagged for that information. It's just information. Um, our informal com common political conversations are usually neither focused nor extensive because we don't want to offend anybody, and especially Democrats are uh, conscious that almost anybody they talk to might be ready to be offended. Uh, and nobody, including our, Eng our English instructor, often asks us for the more rigorous analysis necessary in, say, an essay. To gather news is not just to get headlines. To gather information is not just to watch uh, 20 minutes of a news show, um, be it what it may, and then walk away and spout the conclusions of it. To gather information is to find facts and think about those facts and size the, stand those facts up against your value set. And if you don't do that, if you don't take the time to process what you hear, and if you don't take the time to evaluate the reliability of your sources, you don't know nothing. And if we're going to go to the polls that way, um, when we are presented with that choice, uh, it's not going to be very... very good odds that, that the result is going to be what we 
would thrive from. So who knows about this? Well, we all should, but it takes a little bit of effort and uh, evidently so far Americans have been loath to exercise that effort. I say get on it, write an essay, do some research. Well said. Thank you, Ruth. And I, I had some information I think is important to hear, which I'll, I'll go into here briefly before we conclude, maybe have some time for discussion. But uh, I, I read an article recently published by Popular Information. It was written by Judd Legum. Uh, Tesnim's Zakaria and Rebecca Crosby titled Top Republican Flush with Corporate Cash Embraces Racist Conspiracy Theory, which discusses the Great Replacement Theory, which claims that uh, Democrats in the U.S. are attempting to replace white Americans with non-white immigrants which has been popularized by right-wing media outlets like Fox News, OAN, Newsmax, Elon Musk more recently on Twitter, and, of course, many Republican politicians. The obviously false and toxic conspiracy theory has led to mass violence across the U.S. where white supremacists have been incited to kill immigrants and those, they are told uh, by the conspiracists, are behind the replacement of white Americans. The white supremacists who gathered in Charlottesville in 2017, it was an event that resulted in deadly violence. Uh, They chanted, you or Jews will not replace us. Um, In 2022, an 18-year-old drove uh, nearly 200 miles to a grocery store in Buffalo, New York, and shot and killed 10 black people. The shooter who pled guilty to 10 counts of murder left behind a 180-page manifesto that repeatedly cited the Great Replacement Theory. And the Great Replacement Theory was also uh, the motivating factor in numerous other violent attacks, including the 2015 mass murder in South Carolina that left left nine people dead in a a black church there, the 2019 massacre at a Pittsburgh synagogue that took the lives of 11 people, and the 2018 slaughter of 23 people at an El Paso Walmart, primarily Uh, Latinos. One very dangerous booster of the Great Replacement Theory, as uh, detailed in this article, is Congressman Richard Hudson, Republican of North Carolina, who's a member of the GOP leadership in the House, and he's chair of the National Republican Campaign Committee, the uh, entity responsible for keeping Republicans in charge of the House of Representatives. Hudson has raised millions of dollars to air TV ads that promote hate and fear of immigrants, amplifying the Republican Party's attempt to convince Americans that immigration is a national emergency, an invasion, and use this issue to defeat Democrats in the 2024 presidential and congressional election. Of course, they really don't want to solve the issue, and there are issues at the border to be sure. As we just saw in Congress last week, Democrats had uh, regrettably agreed to a draconian immigration bill negotiated by Republicans, but in the end, most Republicans voted to defeat the bill because Trump told them to to not support it, to reject it. Out of, uh, you know, Trump's always saying the quiet part out loud. He, He said... It would weaken the party's ability to politically weaponize the immigration issue in the 2024 election campaign if it was solved. So keep it going. <laughs> and that, I mean, he said that. It's amazing. 
And he still has millions of supporters out there. Uh, one of the major issues of hypocrisy raised in, in the article is that major U.S. corporations that publicly present themselves as champions of a path to citizenship for dreamers under DACA and other immigrants have handed over large contributions to Representative Hudson and his anti-immigrant campaign. These companies include Microsoft, AT&T, Google, Amazon, MGM, uh, Eli Lilly, Intel, Verizon, Ernst & Young, General Motors, Cisco Systems, United Airlines, Wells Fargo Bank, Johnson & Johnson, Visa, Exelon, Target, and Best Buy. So all these companies are on board the anti-immigrant message and promoting it with this guy Hudson who's in charge of uh, the uh, House Republicans' re-election efforts. One, one additional point before I conclude that was really not part of this article, but I think it's, it's important, is that dozens of these same and, and major U.S. corporations across the country had halted their political contributions to the 147 congressional Republicans who participated in Donald Trump's coup attempt by voting against certifying the 2020 election results on the evening of January 6, 2021. And that was after Trump's violent failed insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. Uh, but very quickly, these corporations, within just a few months, resumed those contributions to the very same Republicans who supported sedition and treason by attempting to burn down the U.S. Constitution and disenfranchise the nation's 80 million voters who voted to defeat Donald Trump in the November 2020 election. So corporate America, I think, is very quietly uh, supporting a fascist movement in this country, and they're not being held accountable. And, of course, these same corporations are part of the media system that don't want to discuss that. <laughs> mm -hmm. They're the advertisers on your TV, your cable news outlet, whatever, and there's very little discussion of corporate complicity with Trump and his MAGA movement and the effort to uh, destroy what's left of U.S. democracy. That's my rant. To, <laughs> to fight the Civil War all over again. In Confederates, fact, but, the yeah. neo-Confederates. Yeah. Oh my God. Uh, that was uh, bracing is uh, an understatement, Scott. That was mm -hmm. very powerful. <laughs> I just wanted to raise the question uh, that, um, of course, is bedeviling me and so many other people these days, which is what's going to happen in this uh looming election that's, you know, we're staring down the gun barrel of at this point, given the uh, proclivity of the U.S. political system to start the presidential election campaign two years before the election. But now it is only one year before the election or less than. So I just wanted to ask both of you what you think is going to happen here. I mean, is there a way—I mean, I think there's blood in the water in terms of Biden's age issue, his mumbling and bumbling, his gaffes, all that kind of stuff, which has been happening with apparent increasing frequency in the past month or so. There's blood in the water. The media is now starting to amplify that. But on the other side of the coin, an actual real issue, the issue of the fact that the Biden himself and— his administration, including the State Department, are not calling for a ceasefire in Gaza, have alienated the Arab American community 
We've seen evidence of that loudly articulated in the past day or two from uh, Dearborn, Michigan and other places in Michigan. What's going to happen? And is there any way that the Democrats can turn this around, either on the specious side of the coin, the issue of Biden's cognitive issues, and on the actual real side, the policy side of the uh, failure of the administration to take a real stand to restrain Israel from slaughtering people in Gaza? I think they've, uh, I think the Democrats, uh, the Republicans have kind of made it almost impossible for Biden to take any action because they're so, they've ra- roused so much rabble that any, any, any direction he turns to, to, we'll say, to attempt to rectify or adjust, um, they're all, all on him right away. And, and throwing now the image of the elderly, forgetful uh, gentleman, I mean elderly, at uh, four whole years older than Trump. <laughs> if you can imagine that, the word immediately conjures up a stooped figure with disorderly white hair, a hearing aid, goggle glasses, and a shuffling gait. I mean, I'll tell you, I, I, was, I was misled when I voted because I thought that Kamala Harris was going to be kind of put in a position where she could plausibly run for president if Biden decided not to. Um, I didn't think she was the best choice for that, but I thought she was a viable choice for that. But as far as I've been able to see, anything she's been working on has been pretty behind the scenes, or at least the media has left it behind the scenes. So that's not an option. And I don't even know if you could say, well, he's got Kamala behind him in case he just collapses of senility, um, because I, I don't know her at all. I don't think that being 80 years old or 81 or whatever disqualifies you from much of anything. And I also think that having so much in your head that sometimes you get lost in the woods is not uh, is a sign of hopeless senility. Uh, but I, we, we have to, it would be nice if we could somehow manage to grab some positive headlines instead of all these negative ones mm-hmm. and uh, shout down at least the, the idiots. Thanks for the question. And thanks for that response, yeah. Ruthie Ann. I, I just have one very quick thought. We don't have much time left, but I think it's very clear that Biden and his administration have failed morally and politically by not responding to the slaughter there. Absolutely. And, um, you know, you always, if the U.S. is truly an, an ally of Israel, they would have tried to stop this long ago, months ago. Uh, but now Israel is damaged you know, they, they, it's, they will be haunted by this slaughter for decades to come. And I think the only way politically for Biden to salvage any of this is to come out 300% in favor of recognizing a Palestinian state. If he did that, I'm not saying it erases the, the moral failure, but at least it would do something in terms of uh, turning the issue in a, in a positive direction. Yeah. And also the issue of immediately demanding a ceasefire. I don't know if it's if that's too late. Right, right, right. Well, that's it for Resistance Roundtable. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next month, the second Saturday of March. Uh, That's March 9th. Stay tuned.